Lord, thank you for the opportunity to uh, hear your living word read to us. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us as we listen to that word, uh, that through your spirit you'll help us to understand what you have to say to us. Lord, I pray that you'll help me as I uh, open up this passage to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'll allow me to be faithful to, uh, to what you have to say. And Lord, I pray that we'll all be able to apply this to our lives and leave here um, more, more ready to serve you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, we're already a week into the new year. And friends, I've already become far more aware of our entry into the information age when I open up my uh, email inbox on New Year's Day and find a whole swathe of questioners reviewing the last 12 months. So showing exactly how much I value my time, I decide that it's a valuable use of my time to sit down and to fill out one of these questionnaires. Now, this is probably going a long way to confirming my uh, primary school teacher's point when they never cast me as a wise man in the nativity plays. But never mind. Uh, Anyway, I'm sitting there and I'm filling out this questionnaire. And it's the usual fur. What did you do last year? What new things did you do? Who did you meet? Where did you go? You could probably guess many of the questions. But one in particular caught my attention. And it was this. What kept you sane in 2006? Okay, that's interesting wording of something, and for those of you who uh, didn't, the meaning of that question is slightly lost, let me explain. The idea behind that question is, what kept you going? What thing or things motivated you to, you know, get out of bed in the morning? And that's a very good question. And if you're one of the people who are sitting there taking down notes, you might want to just jot down what your answer to that question might be. It might be interesting to you. And I'm sure there would be a lot of very good answers to it. Maybe friends, new challenges, quite possibly the chance to make a difference in the world. I'm sure there's some very, very good answers to that. But before we start into looking at this passage, I want to take you back onto a little, in a little bit of a hypothetical journey. Let's imagine that you've went back and you're in first century Rome. And you have a chance to meet the Apostle Peter. Now, you know the last few months have been difficult. Christians have been persecuted. And little do you know, but in two short years' time, Peter himself is going to be executed for his own beliefs. But for the time being, you have a chance to ask him that question. Pete, brother, what keeps you going? Things are so tough, and ho- but how do you keep going? What do you reckon his answer to that would be? Well, rather conveniently for my introduction, I reckon that his answer would be somewhat similar to the passage that you see before you. But if I were to summarize it, this is what I think he would say. We keep going because we have a future that is worth waiting for, and that means that we have a present that is worth enduring, and we can be sure of that because we have a past that is worth acknowledging. And as we look in this passage in a little bit more detail, be looking at each of those statements. So first of all, we have a future that is worth waiting for. And the first thing on Peter's mind is to give us the basis on why we do. Please have a look at verse 3 with me again. I'll just read that out. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope 
to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. After, after praising God, he reminds us that we are no longer the people that we once were. If you were with us last week, you would have seen that from verses 1 and 2 in this chapter, Peter describes our new identity in God's eyes. He tells us that we are elect strangers in the world. We are people chosen by God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, or literally set apart or set aside, and that's for obedience to Jesus Christ. And to do that involves no longer being part of this world as such. So much so that we're like, we like strangers as we walk around. There's a sense that we don't belong. We're citizens of another land. So when I walk around KL, I'm, just not, I'm not just out of place because of my charming accent. It doesn't sound quite local. I'm out of place along with every other Christian, Malaysian or not, because in reality, we have been chosen out of this world to be part of God's kingdom. Now for those of you who sat here last week and didn't quite realise how much of a big deal this is, Peter looks to try and drive this point home uh, in this section. You see, in my view, it seems that many people think that becoming a Christian is a bit like making your New Year's resolutions. So at some point you sit down and you're, you're thinking and you go, hmm, okay, this year I'm going to try and eat more healthily, maybe get more exercise. Oh, I have to be nice to my neighbor, I suppose. And what else, what else, what else? Oh, yeah, I have to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. I've been meaning to do that for so long. Now, don't let me rubbish this idea too much. There's, of course, a time where you need to sit down and make a conscious decision to follow Christ. But if you're under the impression that that's the end of it, that's the full picture, I want to make verse 3 be a bit of a wake-up call to you. There is something much more dramatic than just turning over a new leaf. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now there are a few statements that we could well dwell on from that statement. We could talk about the extent of the change. It's not just a bit of minor tweaking with what's already there. It's a completely fresh start. We could also look at the fact that it's completely in God's hands. It is out of his great mercy that we are given this new birth. And it seems that we have about as much say in our rebirth as we did in our first birth. It's completely in God's hands. We could also look at the fact that it's through Jesus Christ that we have this new life. It's through his death and resurrection that we are given this new birth. But what I particularly want to draw your attention to is the end point of this transformation. That our rebirth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is into a living hope. Now the first thing I want to try and sort out with you is what we mean when we think of this word hope. Uh, it'd be my guess that the thing that comes to our minds is a sort of wishful thinking variety of idea. Something in the effect of, mm, I hope it doesn't rain tonight, I was hoping to go to the Passer Malam in Banzar. But I want to just make clear that that is not what the Bible means when it says hope. Hope, as it's used in this passage, 
is a certain hope. It is something that hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. There's no doubt about it. No wishful thinking required. It's just going to happen. And Peter is telling us, as elect strangers, we have a living hope. We have something that's worth waiting for. So the question that's coming to our minds is this. What? Well, let's read on. And the astute among you will have noticed that when I read out verse 3, that I seem to have stopped in the middle of a sentence. So let me just read that full sentence out in full. And uh, it actually covers right the way through from verse 3 to verse 5. But just let me read that out. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Our hope is in an inheritance. It's an inheritance kept in heaven for us. And to the original readers, the nature of this inheritance would have been clear. Uh, If you were paying attention during our Old Testament reading, you would have saw saw that the inheritance was connected to the promised land, It was the place that God had given to the nation of Israel. And it represents the people of God being in God's land, or in God's place, and under his blessing and rule. And what Peter is talking about here is the true inheritance that the Old Old Testament inheritance was pointing to. And that has been made ours by right. But friends, it just hasn't it just ha- we don't quite have it yet as we have seen in verse 5 it's ready to be revealed at the last time and as soon as we hear that there might be a couple of potential problems that we might be thinking about, be concerned about and to try and illustrate this I'm going to ask you to try and take a step into my shoes um, just let's say that I have a long lost aunt who passes away And I find that I happen to be her her only living relative. So after I'm notified, I eagerly turn up to the will reading. And to my delight, she has left me her entire estate. And it seems I probably should have got to know this aunt a little bit sooner. Because she is actually quite wealthy. And the estate is worth an absolutely huge amount. Tens of millions of dollars. Now, just as I'm getting carried away trying to think about what to do with the money, what I'm going to buy, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to see, the lawyer points out that there's actually a clause in the will. You see, my aunt's biggest concern was that her family would live well in the retirement. So when she made the will and left me her money, she made a commandment that would be kept in a trust fund until I'm 65. Ah, now if you were me what would, you be th- what would be going through your mind at that moment in time I suspect that you would have probably a couple of ideas the first thing would probably be something along the lines of this how much of that money is actually going to be there when I retire now don't get me wrong tens of millions of dollars is a huge amount it's a great amount I would love to have tens of millions of dollars if anyone has ten million dollars free feel free to give it to me but, uh, but the thing is, uh, but even 10 years ago, 
I would be able to buy just as much and do just as much with a fraction of the money. So by the time I'm 65, that money's just going to be worth nothing at all. And then even, even if it is worth a certain amount, what's Ted saying that I'm going to make it to 65? <laughs> After all, I could walk out tomorrow, get run over by a bus, and never get a chance to enjoy my inheritance. And I reckon those would be all of our two major concerns if we, if we were in that situation. Would our inheritance still be there? And even if it was, would I still be around to enjoy it? And we're tempted to think a similar thing about the inheritance that Peter is telling us about. You might be thinking, Peter, this all sounds lovely, but it's so far in the future. You know, is it still going to be around? And perhaps more importantly, am I going to make it to heaven to have a chance to enjoy it? And Peter has an answer to both of these queries in verses 4 and 5. First of all, in verse 4, we are told that it is an inheritance kept for us that will never spoil, perish, or fade. It's not like the treasures we hold so highly here on earth. Just take a few moments and try and think of the most precious, the most valuable, or the most fun uh, or fantastic thing that you could possibly have on this earth. I don't know what it might be. It might be uh, some new games console, maybe a diamond necklace, or uh, even that new top-of-the-range Ferrari. Now, I don't want to put a damper on your thoughts, but whatever you've thought about, someday it would break, or it would be devalued in some way, or it would just simply go missing. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you that it is not so with our inheritance in heaven. It is an eternal inheritance. There is no chance of it going missing before we have a chance to enjoy it. And even more than that, there is no chance that once we have got our hands on it, that it's ever going to break down or just disappear or spoil or perish. So, okay, we've got one of our queries settled. Our inheritance will definitely be there at the last time. But what about the other thing? Am I going to get a chance to enjoy it? Am I going to get just so close to heaven, but yet just that little, it's just that little bit too far away? Am I just going to trip up at the final hurdle? Well, Peter's message in verse 5 is this. Gloriously, we will make it to heaven. Verse 5 tells us that by faith we are being shielded by God's power while we wait. By faith in his power, there is just no way that we can't make it. Because again, it's God's work. He has made sure that we make it to the inheritance that he has promised us. And we will persevere till the end because of his power. So because of this rebirth into a living hope, we have an eternal inheritance that is being guarded for us, and more than that, we are being guarded for it. And that's an inheritance that truly makes it a future that is worth waiting for. And with this in our mind, our perspective really should change. Because if the future is that worth waiting for, then surely we should be willing to get on with life now. We'd be living in the present, 
The door is hard. It's definitely worth enduring. And that's the issue that Peter goes on to address in verse 6. Do have a look back at it. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while uh, you may have to, had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. It needs to be pointed out that living as a Christian is not going to be easy. We are strangers in the world, living in a way that sets us apart from those around us. And friends, that's just going to attract trouble. And it certainly seems to be the case for the original readers of Peter's letter. But I know what you may well be thinking. I'm sure that you all accept that with a future that awaits us as Christians, it's right to rejoice during tough times. And our response to verse 6, I dare say, as Christians, is going to be a rousing amen. Am I right? But that doesn't answer a deeper question. Why? Why can't I go to heaven now? Some of us will be struggling so much that we'll be thinking something to the effect of this. Why do I have to go through this day after day? I don't know what your trials might be. They might be battles, in, uh, sort of material battles from the world around us. Rejection by friends. Or persecution and discrimination from those around us for our beliefs. Or it may be a spiritual battle. Maybe a feeling that we're just losing the battle against sin. Or maybe a creeping doubt that just provides a barrier between us and trusting in God's power. Whatever it is, we are longing for heaven to claim what is made ours through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes it puzzles us why we have to wait around first. And it's a thought that I'm sure was very close to those first century Christians as they suffered their persecutions. And Peter goes on to address that issue in the, in the next verse, in verse 7. And I'll read that out to you. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter's message to us is simple. Our trials are not without purpose. It is to strengthen and to prove genuine something that is precious. And to those who, are th- who, who have been reading this and thinking something to the effect of, my faith will get me to heaven, it's God's power, why do I have to hang around here first? He draws them back to something that everybody would agree is valuable. He talks about gold. Now, I'm guessing that most of you are well aware that you don't just trip over 24 karat bars of gold as you're walking around. At least not unless you're exceptionally lucky. And if, but if you ever were to find gold, which I'll point out does require a fair deal of luck in itself, you'd probably find it in a very impure state. It'd be mixed up with a lot of other materials, rock, minerals, and it'd be in a form that wouldn't be massively useful for making all those pretty bits of jewellery that we all want to look at. That is, unless you particularly like looking at glittery bits of coal or the like. So what do you do? Well, I'll tell you what you don't do. Not unless you're a little bit stupid anyway. You don't say to yourself, Oh, oh well, it's, it's gold, but it'll perish anyway. And then throw it over your shoulder. 
That would just show that you didn't quite pick up on how valuable the object you were holding was. No, you'd go away and you'd, well, actually I suspect that many of you would probably need to ask advice uh, on what you would do next. But seeing as I'm a helpful variety of guy, I'll let you know what to do if you ever do find yourself in that situation. The first thing you'll have to do is break up the rock and then you have to heat it to a high temperature. Sticking it in your gas oven is probably not likely to cut it in this situation. I would suggest trying to hire out a furnace and get it to a really high temperature. And what should happen is the gold will melt off and you can collect it at the bottom. It's be purified and it'll be well useful for that jewellery that you want. It's a process that is known as refining by fire. And by the way, I don't actually recommend that you try this. It's an incredibly costly process unless you have tons and tons of gold to go through. But it is something that we're prepared to do for something that, although valuable, is going to be useless to us someday. So how much more work are we going to put in to, to real, eternal treasure? And friends, that's what our faith is to us. Peter describes it as more precious than gold. I wonder if you're convinced by that yet. If not, let me give you a few reasons why you should be. We've already seen that it's how we are guarded by God's power. If you look back at verse 5, you will see it was, it, it, that Peter describes us as those who by faith are shielded by God's power. But in these later verses, Peter draws us to the final results of that faith. Do have a look at verses 7 to 9 with me. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your salvation, uh, the goal of your faith the salvation of your souls. The first thing Peter wants to point out to his readers is that, the pre- that, this pre- is that their precious faith results in praise, glory and honour. Now I'll let you know that there is a lot of discussion about verse 7 as to whether this is praise, glory and honour going to Jesus Christ or to us as Christians. Uh, for my bit in it, uh, from the focus of the argument that Peter is making so far, I would tend to say that the praise and glory and honour is going to us as Christians. But the fact remains, there is reward on the last day for our faith in Christ. And Peter goes on to expand on this in verses 8 and 9. And verse 8, if you look at it, goes to show in detail what our faith is. It's a belief and a love of Jesus Christ, even though we haven't seen him. Now some of you may be able to recall what is probably one of the most concise definitions of faith that can be found in the Bible. It's found in Hebrews chapter 11 verse verse 1 and you can find it on the screen for those who haven't come across it before. And it says this, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And that's precisely what is being described in verse 8. Although we do not see Christ, we are certain of his existence. And although we are, and we are certain of what we are going to receive, and so we love him, 
and we are filled with joy. And we wait in eager anticipation for the salvation of our souls, which that we have a sure hope in. And because of our, our faith is being refined, and so and because our faith is being refined, and so preparing us for the glorious future that we have waiting for us. And we so we are living in a present that is well worth enduring. But at this point, I reckon that many of you will probably not be so sure. That's all fine and well, Mark. But surely, it's all just pie in the sky when you die, you may say. And the problem is, you're not really giving us much hope of pie now. That would be a very good point. We have to ask, how can you be so sure, Peter? There really is a lot at stake here, and I, for one, do not want to waste my life if he's wrong. Well, thankfully, Peter doesn't leave us in the dark at this point. He tells us that we have a past that is worth acknowledging. What Peter is at strange to remind us about is that the New Testament does not arrive to us in a vacuum. Our Bible does not just begin at Matthew's Gospel. But we also have the dealings of God with his people, the nation of Israel, in the Old Testament. And the entire Bible is revealing God to us. But Peter is focusing on one particular aspect of the Old Testament's teaching. Do have a look at verses 10 to 11 with me. This is what Peter has to say to us. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that were to follow. Now the first thing that is of note is that uh, the prophets, and that is the writers of the Old Testament, spoke of this, salvation. Now that's the salvation that Peter has been talking about. Uh, in the previous verses. In fact, it's worth noticing that if you were looking at your Bible and seeing that nice little paragraph break there, that that's of little concern to Peter. They didn't have paragraph breaks. They didn't have paragraphs. So Peter has just actually said, you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, so this is something concerning our salvation as Christians. And we see that, the, as, and we see that, as they ser- uh, searched and studied carefully concerning it, what did they find out? Well, the focus of their study was concerned with Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now, this should be of little shock to us. We are all very much aware that the Old Testament is full of prophecy concerning the coming of God's anointed King. But what in particular is Peter focusing on? Do have a look back at verse 11 again. And what you will see there is that what Peter is looking at is that the prophets were predicting the suffering of Christ as well as the glories that were to follow. And friends, we're going to see that this is incredibly important to us. As we'll see that the same pattern holds for us. Just have a look with me at uh, how Peter continues his argument in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves when they spoke of the things that have now been... Sorry, they were not serving themselves, but you, 
when they spoke of the things that have been now told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The amazing thing is that although they had a lot to say to their people, the Old Testament prophets were primarily speaking to New Testament Christians. These are the people who from verse 8 hadn't seen Christ yet loved him and believed him. Have you got it? That includes us. So when the gospel was preached to us, the prophets served to testify that the pattern that we are seeing is God's plan. And friends, this is why Peter can confidently speak in verse 7 of the glory, the honour and praise that has been given to these suffering, Christi- suffering and trial-weary Christians. Because as we'll see in more depth as we look through this letter, the followers of Jesus can expect to see the same pattern in their lives as they saw in Jesus' life. So And so, the prophets, as they search intently into the coming of Christ, are a reassurance to the suffering Christian. So it means that passages such as that from Isaiah 53 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, um, are a great encouragement to us because we are to follow the same pattern of suffering and then glory. And we can be sure that is the case because we do indeed have that past that is worth acknowledging. So as we finish off, if you did that, write down an answer to that question I asked earlier, you might want to have another glance at it. I'm sure whatever you wrote down was very useful. It was probably a good thing and very helpful in you keeping going. But I hope that we've seen in this section that we have some very good reasons to keep going as a Christian. Because as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a future that is very much worth waiting for. It is a rich inheritance and one that will last forever. And because we know that, we have a present that is worth enduring. Because all those hard times that we experience only serve to refine our faith and confirm our future to be sure. And we can sure that this is worth enduring because we have a past that is worth acknowledging. And we've seen that the prophets testify to this pattern of present suffering leading to future glory. And what a future we have waiting for us. The salvation of our souls and the eternity in heaven enjoying our inheritance. Peter tells us that this is such a great topic that even the angels long to look into these things. And I hope that we too will be eager to know the extent of the salvation and keep going in the faith and power that God provides. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we do thank you that you have given us such a great assurance that through the death of your, your son, Jesus Christ, and belief in him, that we can be sure of a great inheritance that is to come on the last day. Lord, I pray that you will help all of us to keep going in that faith and keep uh, enduring the trials of this, uh, of this age, sure of the hope that is to come. Lord, we ask these things in our Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.